This work is a parody of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast. Mr. Carlin is not associated with this production, and any views or opinions presented in this podcast are solely those of Alex Berg and Jason Green. What you're about to hear is the second part of a multi-part series on the War of the Five Kings. If you're the kind of person who doesn't mind jumping into things in the middle, well then, go ahead and give it a listen. But if you're the sort of person who wants to know how the story started, then may I recommend you go out and check out the first episode. Either way, here is Shadow of the Dragon, Part 2. So long as I'm your king, it's history. Treason shall never go unpunished. The events. There's a brave man knocking at our door. The drama. Let's go kill them. The figures. When you play the game of thrones, you win. Will you die? It's hardcore Game of Thrones. Winter is coming. How would you feel if you were responsible for the end of something incredible? And I'm not talking about something like making the bad play that ruins your team's winning streak or going over to your friend's house and spilling coffee on his expensive new rug or anything like that. No, by incredible, I mean something that the world had never seen before. Something that thousands of talented people had dedicated entire lifetimes to building, that had been passed down through the generations for hundreds of years, that had influenced the lives of millions of people, something that had changed the world forever. What if something like that was given to you with the understanding that it was your job to protect it, to make it better in some way before passing it along to someone new, and you destroyed it? How would you feel? And... What if you didn't even know you were breaking it in the first place? What if it wasn't until moments, literal seconds before you died, that you realized what had happened? That you understood the magnitude of what you had done? And what if in those seconds you knew, deep down in your bones, you knew that it was entirely your fault? What would your last thoughts be? I ask, because of the Targaryen dynasty. The Targaryen dynasty was a rare thing in the world of Westeros in that it managed to pull together a whole bunch of independent kingdoms that had been at war for thousands of years and forced them to work together as a larger whole under one government. And it managed to do this for hundreds of years, and they were often difficult years, until it succumbed to sudden, unexpected, and total destruction because of one man. You know, one of the interesting things about the Targaryens, at least to me, is that if you look at their family tree over the... 300 or so years that they ruled over Westeros, they pretty much, generally speaking, fall into one of two groups. The first group are, well, let's call them the superstars. If Westerosi politics were like baseball, this group would be kind of your big-time, you know, major league players, your Babe Ruths and Hank Aarons, those kinds of guys. Now, there were a few things you could do to get into this group. You could be a great leader, a, a real mover and a shaker, or, or, you know, someone who could rally people around their vision, win any battle, defeat any enemy, that sort of thing. Or it could be that you were a lot smarter than the average Westerosi. Or not just smarter, perhaps that's unfair, but perhaps you were unusually wise. Someone who seems like they've got a direct line to a higher truth. 
You're a great ruler. You can institute sweeping governmental reforms, improve the life of your subjects, both rich and poor. And in your spare time, you enjoy taking long walks in your garden and writing down your deep thoughts about life. Or maybe you're both. The archetypal warrior poet king. Sort of like a Westerosi Marcus Aurelius or Kubla Khan. Someone like that. Aegon the Conqueror, he'd definitely be in the superstars, just to give you an idea of the caliber of person that we're talking about here. I mean, these are the folks who were great roles on the hereditary monarchy die. Which brings us to the second group. These are, well, let's call them the wild cards. And there's a lot of them. These are the Targaryens who abused their power or let it go to their head. And they're also the ones that, by and large, exhibited symptoms that are usually associated with mental illness. Hallucinations, delusions of grandeur, extreme paranoia, sadomasochism, fun stuff like that. And across the board, these wild cards, they're unusually cruel, too. I mean, sometimes horrifically, unspeakably so. I mean, these are the men and women who love making other people suffer. Now, sometimes they do it in your typical run-of-the-mill bully-type way. You know, jerks who are just casually mean to anybody they happen to bump into. They're not great, but they also don't do anything too terrible either. But then you also have wild cards who are, and I hate to paint with too broad of a brush here, but the ones that are evil. These are the Targaryens who love torture who do stuff like setting human beings, their own subjects, on fire simply because they enjoy watching them burn. They participate in atrocities that are so vile that they become the stuff of legend. They get nicknames like Aegon the Unworthy or Magor the Cruel, and these are guys who, by virtue of being born into almost limitless power, were able to let their less-than-impressive character traits run wild. They're people that you don't want anywhere near you, let alone ruling over your entire kingdom. If Hannibal Lecter had been born with violet eyes and silver hair, well, he'd be right at home with the Targaryen wild cards. And here's the tricky thing about that. Sometimes these two groups weren't mutually exclusive. I mean, there are plenty of stories of Targaryens who were on track to become superstars and then drifted into the wild card side of things, or vice versa. I mean, you've heard that saying about how there's a fine line between madness and brilliance, right? Well, over the course of their rule, the Targaryens walked that line. A lot. They basically lived on it. There was a Targaryen king named Jaehaerys who noticed this um, genetic pattern in his family and basically summed it up with this great quote that I just love. He said, Madness and greatness are two sides of the same coin. Every time a new Targaryen is born, the gods toss the coin in the air, and the world holds its breath to see how it will land. Now, why would the world hold its breath? Well, power... Power is sort of like an amplifier for someone's natural abilities. And what I mean by that is, for most people, if they have a psychological disorder that makes them act a little erratically, it affects their loved ones and the people around them, but that's generally it. And I, I want to be very clear on this point. I'm not in any way trying to minimize how devastating a mental disorder can be. I'm just saying that, well, usually, if you have one, the problems that come along with it are somewhat localized, I guess we could say. That's for people like me, and maybe you, and, and I would think most of my listeners. But if you're someone who's in a position of immense power, the kind of person who could, I don't know, you know change the course of history in a day if you felt like it, 
and all of a sudden you start hearing voices in your head or become convinced that imaginary threats are real or any other host of issues, how you react to those problems, well, well, the consequences aren't so limited anymore. They aren't localized. They affect everyone who's under your power. And when you're a Targaryen king, that means they affect everyone across an entire country. Heck, across an entire continent, maybe even the entire world. Your problems are globalized. The point being that when a member of the Targaryen family grew up and became one of those wild cards, they were able to cause a lot of trouble. The kind of trouble that leaves just a trail of corpses behind it. The kind of trouble that, well, the kind of trouble that people will remember hundreds of years later. I mean, Attila the Hun trouble, Genghis Khan trouble, Caligula trouble. But by the same token, when a Targaryen grew up and joined the superstars, what allowed them to do a whole lot of good? The kind of good that makes the world a better place. Now, the man who turned out to be the last Targaryen king, well, he started his rule off looking like he had a shot at becoming one of the superstars, and then shifted in a major way to the wildcard side of things. And he's also the same man I was talking about earlier. The one who was handed this incredible thing, the Targaryen dynasty, and destroyed it. His name was Eris Targaryen, otherwise known as the Mad King. Now, I know I've talked about similar stuff before, but something that's interesting to me is that nobody really knows when they're living through the beginning of the end, do they? I mean, a lot of times, the period leading up to disaster seems like business as usual for everybody who's alive during it, and it's only from our lofty, comfortable place in the future that we can look back and see where all the problems started. Eris Targaryen's rule didn't start with anyone saying to themselves, well, time to pack everything up and call it a day. The end of everything we know is here. In fact, it was almost the opposite. During the early years of his reign, you know, at first a lot of people actually thought that his coin toss might have landed on greatness. By most accounts, he was charming, kind to others, not exceptionally intelligent, but definitely smart enough to be an effective leader. He had big ideas about how to improve living conditions in the realm, things like an aqueduct to Dorn. You know, eventually he wanted to turn Dorn into a Los Angeles or a Las Vegas type situation and make the desert bloom, if you can imagine that. But also, more importantly, he didn't seem to have the cruelty or insanity that a lot of his ancestors had, and so for a long time, the common folk were, you know, uh, by and large, pretty happy to have him around, because it seemed like, at the very least, his rule was going to be business as usual. And as his reign went on, the general public got even happier with him, because one of the greatest things a monarch can give to his people is peace. The chance to live and work without the constant fear that at any minute you might be called up and asked to go die horribly in some strange place you've never been to before, surrounded by men you've never met. Oh, and while you're doing that, bandits or invaders are probably going to rape and murder your entire family, steal your horse, and then burn down your farm. Avoiding that type of situation? <laughs> I mean, that's pretty high up on any regular person's wish list. And for almost two decades... That's exactly what Eris Targaryen gave Westeros. Or at least, that's the impression he gave Westeros. You see, to most people in the Seven Kingdoms, it might have seemed like Eris was the one running the show, the one bringing peace to the realm. But in reality, he had someone helping him in a major way. 
In fact, when you really look at Eris' time in power, you can make the case that it was this other person who was actually in charge, who was the king in everything but name. And this king in everything but name was named Tywin Lannister. If that sounds familiar, it's because we talked about the Lannisters briefly in the last episode. You might remember that it was a Lannister king who fought Aegon the Conqueror at the Field of Fire, and then once he saw half his army get used as kindling by a flying, fire-breathing death machine, said, you know what, I'm good with being a mighty lord instead of a king, that's just fine by me, and bent the knee to Aegon. At which point, the Lannisters went from being kings to being one of the seven great houses of Westeros. They rule over the Westerlands, which are the stretch of land that runs along the west coast of Westeros. Boy, that's a mouthful. But even though it's one of the smaller of the seven kingdoms, geographically, it's also one of the more powerful. The capital of the Westerlands is a place called Casterly Rock. And this is, well, it's just one of the most unique fortresses in all of Westeros. In fact, even calling it a fortress is somewhat misleading because it isn't really a fortress at all. It's a gigantic, hollowed-out rock sitting right on the edge of the Sunset Sea. And Casterly Rock is just... Well, first off, one interesting historical mystery about it is that, for being such an important place, there don't seem to be any first-hand accounts of it. Every source I can find is second- or third-hand at best. It's as if everybody just assumed it would be there forever, so there's no reason to write anything down. Regardless, what accounts we do have tell us that Casterly Rock is just massive. It's like a skyscraper carved out of stone that's three times as high as the wall. I mean, it's so big that there's an entire active shipping port inside its foundation. And not only that, but the whole thing has been hollowed out and filled with rooms and great halls and storage areas and stables and barracks. I mean, it's got everything. In fact, until Hall was built, Casterly Rock was the largest fortress in Westeros, and it's arguably an even better one than Hall since it's never been taken, or, you know, melted by dragonfire. And this impregnable fortress, which, by the way, sits on top of the most productive gold mine in the country, is the home base of the Lannisters, which means the Lannisters are rich, incredibly rich. They're the Rockefellers of Westeros, and everybody knows it. Now, the lives of Aerys Targaryen and Tywin Lannister, you can't really talk about one without the other. It's a bit like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, someone like that. Of course, when you're a member of the elite ruling class, as both of them were, pretty much everybody knows everybody, but these two guys weren't just tied together by their social or economic status. It wasn't a relationship based on circumstance. They were legitimate friends, best friends even, for a long time, too. I mean, when Tywin was just a kid, around maybe 10 years old, his father, Tytos Lannister, who at the time was the lord of Casterly Rock, Tytos sends him off to King's Landing, where he got him a job as the royal cupbearer at the court of Aegon V, who was Eris's grandfather. And this means, ostensibly, Tywin is going to be offering drinks to the king and his family and anyone powerful enough to be around them. But really, it's a way for Tywin to learn how life at the palace works and to make connections with other powerful folks. He gets a front row seat behind the political curtain where he can see how things really get done in a monarchy and get ready for the life he's going to have to lead once he becomes a great lord in his own right. But yes, also to serve drinks. Gotta serve those drinks when you're the cupbearer. It's here at court that Tywin and Eris first meet. And, you know, I kind of imagine that it's sort of like that thing you have when, when you're a kid where you know, it doesn't really matter what the other person's like. As long as you're roughly the same age, you're instantly either going to hate each other or you're going to be friends. 
Tywin's a year or two older than Eris, but it's not a major difference, and the two of them end up liking each other. They're buddies. A few years go by, and then when they're in their mid to late teens, a tiny war breaks out in the Stepstones. And remember, the Stepstones are a little group of islands off the southeastern coast of Westeros. They're all that's left of that land bridge that used to connect Essos and Westeros together. So, a little war breaks out, nothing major by Westerosi standards, and Eris and Tywin are sent down to be, I'm not sure what the modern equivalent is, but junior officers, maybe, something like that. In the same way that being a cupbearer was a way to see how life at court works, this was a way for the two of them to see what life at war is like, to sow their oats as leaders, to get a feel for what it's like to command men, to see people die, and maybe even to kill someone themselves. And it's here that... Well, it seems like the time they spend together in battle is the thing that takes their friendship to a whole new level. From childhood buddies to young men who look like they've got a pretty good chance at being friends for life. A good example of how close they got during this period is, well, being a knight in Westeros is a big, big deal. I mean, it's a rite of passage that just about every important person, well, every important male person at least, but every important person goes through and every commoner dreams about. And almost equally as important as becoming a knight is who you get knighted by. Any knight is able to make a new knight. It involves the whole kneeling thing where the knight touches the knight in training shoulders with his broadsword, and there's a lot of high-minded talk about serving the king and the realm, and a lot of vows, and it's all very formal and serious, and the better the knight who knights you, the bigger of an honor it is. When it comes time for Eris to be knighted, well, he's the crown prince. He could literally choose anyone in the realm to do it. People would fight for the honor. Heck, people would kill for it. And with limitless possibilities, he chooses Tywin, who by that point was already a knight himself. Again, that's a huge honor. I mean, huge. Eris is the future king of Westeros. This isn't something to give to a casual friend. It's, it's not something you ask Bill down at the bar to do because he's a swell guy. It's something you do when you consider the person to be, well, almost family. That's how close these guys are. After the war, Tywin and Eris go their separate ways. Eris heads back to the Red Keep, and Tywin returns to Casterly Rock. And this is the period when we see Tywin really start coming into his own. He's lived at court, he's led men in battle, he's knighted a king, he's had the sort of life experiences that really shape a person, that reveal who they actually are, what they're made out of. You know, I don't like to use the word genius too often. I, I think it's already used enough to describe... I don't know, flash-in-the-pan achievements of, shall we say, mediocre individuals. But from everything I've read, if anyone does deserve to be called a genius, it's Tywin Lannister. And he's a genius in a weird sort of way, too. Or, not weird, that's the wrong word, but certainly in an unusual way. Because his genius isn't in mathematics or art or something that you can quantify and point to. Uh, yep, this guy's a genius, all right. No. Tywin Lannister's genius was in leadership. I mean, it's like he was born for it. And well, as the first son of a great lord, technically he was born for it, but you know what I mean. There's just something undeniably inherent about his talents. Now, unfortunately, a lot of this talent is tied up in the fact that he could be absolutely ruthless. If you've ever watched Breaking Bad, the television show, there's that scene where one of the tougher characters is handing out a little bit of advice about how to get things done. And his message boils down to no half measures. 
which is his way of saying the ends justify the means. If you've got a problem, you do whatever it takes to make sure it's so thoroughly dealt with that it won't ever be a problem again, period. And boy, does that sum up Tywin Lannister's philosophy on everything. No half measures. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. Everybody who was around to know him agrees that Tywin's father, Tidos, was nothing like Tywin. He was, uh, well, there's just no other way to say it, but Tidos was weak. He didn't want to make any waves. He didn't want to cause any trouble. He just wanted everybody to get along. And even worse, he seemed to be incapable of saying no to strong personalities, which none of that stuff is bad in and of itself. But when you're the leader of a great house, those are traits that can be exploited easily. They're like chinks in your armor for people trying to get stuff from you. And when you're in the position that Titus was in, when you're a great lord, there are always people trying to get stuff from you. By the time Tywin returns from the war in the Stepstones, Tidos has made a mess out of House Lannister. I mean, the decline had been going on for years, but by that point, things were really coming to a head. I mean, Tidos had Bannerman borrowing money and never paying it back. Bandits were terrorizing the Westerlands without any repercussions. Bad marriages were being made. Official orders were being ignored. I mean, the Lannisters used to be known as a force to be reckoned with, and now they're just a laughingstock. I mean, literally, there are stories of people laughing at Tidos to his face, in his own hall, and he just laughs right along with them. Tywin's not the laughing sort. He's been watching his father drag their house down for years, and while when he was younger he couldn't really do anything about it, things are different now. He's older, more experienced, and he's decided that he's not going to sit around and let Tidos damage the Lannister name any more than he already has. In fact, not only that, he's going to make it stronger than ever. Tywin starts by sending out letters to his father's bannermen that say, well, no, not say, that demand that any of them who borrowed money from the Lannisters and have yet to pay it back, well, they have to send one of their children to Casterly Rock as a hostage until the debt is repaid. And even though on the face of it, these letters are about money, they're really a chance for Tywin to say, guess what, the way you were treating my father and by extension my family... That's over now. I'm in charge. You're paying back your debts, you're cleaning up your act, and you're treating the Lannisters with respect. Or else. Some of the bannermen take these letters seriously, but a lot don't. After all, Tywin was, well, he was just some kid, and his father was a joke. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. Your neighbor up the street has been letting his yard go, and then his oldest son tells you you've got to come clean it up. Well, you'd be forgiven if you didn't rush to fire up your lawnmower and help them out. So, some of these houses size things up and do what anyone might do if they received a threatening letter from a teenager. They ignore it. And there are two houses that take things a step further than that, even. The Reigns and the Tarbecks, two of the Lannisters' most powerful bannermen. And, not coincidentally, the two that have gained the most by Tidos's weak leadership. When the Reigns get Tywin's letter, not only do they ignore it, they tell their subordinate houses to ignore it, too. And the Tarbecks? The Tarbecks get so ticked off about it that they kidnap three Lannisters in retaliation. Imagine something like that happening in America. I mean, picture a scenario where the IRS decides somebody pretty wealthy hasn't been paying enough taxes. Let's say Bill Gates has been hoarding money from the government for years because the head of the IRS has been a weak-willed sycophant. And when Bill tells him to get lost, he just laughs and does what he's told. 
Now let's say some new guy comes into the IRS, looks at their books, and realizes that Bill Gates owes years of back taxes. And so he sends out a few collection agents to the Gates' mansion to collect. Can you imagine the uproar if Bill Gates then decided to kidnap those collection agents and on top of it refused to pay back the taxes which he admitted he owed? It's hard to imagine our government standing for that kind of treatment. And yet, that's almost exactly what happened to Tywin Lannister. Words are exchanged, a few threats are made, but ultimately what happens is that Tywin ends up sending another letter, this time just to the Reigns and the Tarbecks. And this one isn't about debts or hostages. This one is ordering them to present themselves in Casterly Rock and answer for their crimes. You told your subordinates to ignore my orders? Better get over here and explain why. You kidnapped three of my family members? You really better get over here and explain why. And once again, the two houses ignore him. Now, Tidos might have just laughed off that kind of insubordination. But not Tywin. In fact, it's pretty much accepted that he knew they'd refuse to show up. That he wanted them to refuse. Why? Because now he has the chance to make an example out of them. So he gathers up the soldiers loyal to his house and marches on House Tarbeck. I can only imagine the Tarbecks hearing about this and thinking to themselves, you know, big deal, like father, like son, right? By then, they hadn't taken the Lannisters seriously for years, and they don't plan on starting now. So they get their own army together and march out to meet Tywin in battle, presumably to show this, this child what real warfare looks like. Only, that child wins every battle. Easily, I might add. And the Tarbecks have to retreat, more and more, further and further, until finally, they have so few soldiers left and so few options that they have to take shelter in their own castle. All of them. Every member of the Tarbeck family hiding out together in their ancestral hall. An ancestral hall, by the way, that had been in ruins until they used Lannister gold to refurbish the entire darn thing. So they're hiding out inside this place when Tywin and his army arrive. And what does Tywin do? He has the building leveled, demolished, completely obliterated while the Tarbecks are still inside it. Throughout his life, Tywin Lannister was famous for never smiling. Sort of a weird thing to be famous for, but nonetheless, it explains why there's this rumor that when Tarbeck Hall came crashing down on top of the Tarbecks and extinguished their family line forever, well, supposedly, Tywin smiled then. So now the reigns hear about this, excuse the pun, but this crushing defeat. And instead of doing the sensible thing and taking some time to think over their options, they gathered their forces and march out to battle. I mean, they must have been thinking that the Tarbecks just had an off day or something, and now it was time for the real adults to show up and teach this upstart Lannister a thing or two about what happens when you send nasty letters to real men. And it's like, it's like Groundhog's Day. The exact same thing that happened the first time happens all over again. Tywin wins every battle, the Reigns have to retreat, Tywin wins again, they retreat some more and then some more, until finally they're back at their castle, a place called Castamere, with nowhere to go. Or rather, nowhere visible to go. They don't take shelter in a castle. They at least learn that much from what happened to the Tarbecks. Instead, the Reigns have a series of mines that run underneath their castle and into the surrounding village. Huge mines that twist along for miles underground. So they take what's left of their army and their subjects, which are basically just the nearby villagers, and then they get all the members of their family together and retreat into those mines. 
which on the surface might seem crazy or at least stupid, but Castamere was a lot like Casterly Rock in that it started out as a series of mines that was then converted into a subterranean fortress. A close equivalent would be some of the trenches on the Western Front during the First World War, the ones that the Germans had fully outfitted with plumbing, electricity, wallpaper in some cases. You know, not ideal, but at least you've got some of the uh, comforts of home. So it's easy to see why the Rains might have thought this was a good idea. From their point of view, they're headed into a fully stocked, easily defendable, underground bomb shelter, while that rube Tywin stuck above ground with his army that's only got 500 cavalry and 3,000 men-at-arms who've all been fighting for a while now. I mean, from where they're standing, forcing some kind of treaty seems like a very real possibility. What they didn't know, however, was what Tywin Lannister was capable of. Once everyone settled and they're feeling pretty secure about their position, the Reigns send an envoy out to offer terms to Tywin, who rejects them, resoundingly. As far as he's concerned, the time for negotiation is long gone. He has every entrance and exit to the Castamere mines sealed shut, except for one. Then he, and, and this is the sort of uh, outside-the-box thinking, I guess you could call it, that really shows what kind of guy Tywin was, but he has his army divert a river, so that it pours directly into that final entrance. Then he sits back and waits as Castamere slowly fills with water. There were thousands of people in those mines. And keep in mind, most of them didn't even know what they were doing there in the first place. They were common folk, farmers, villagers, regular people who got wrapped up in a fight that their lords were having that really didn't have anything to do with them. And now they're sitting there, in the dark, cold and hungry, and huddled together with their children, and listening to the sound of rushing water as it gets closer and closer and closer. You know when you fill a glass with water, and you can tell when it's almost full just from the sound it makes? Well, imagine hearing that sound, but it's coming from all around you. It's everywhere. And if that wasn't enough for you to figure out what was going on, Sooner or later, once the water level got past your feet, say, or maybe even your knees or, or your waist, there would come a moment when you realized that it wasn't going to stop. And that realization would be followed by another one. That you and everyone you ever knew, your friends, your family, was about to die. You were all going to drown together in the dark listening as the sounds of screaming was slowly replaced by the sounds of water and then by silence. In the end, every single person who went into those mines drowns. And then, for good measure, Tywin has every surface structure at Castamere burned to the ground. You know, it's, it's rare that we get a source besides Meister Martin who can give us a sense of how people reacted to specific Westerosi events, or rather how they felt about it. But in this case... We've got one, because a traveling singer wrote a popular song about it called The Reigns of Castamere. I have the lyrics in front of me, and knowing that the context behind them is Tywin Lannister drowning hundreds and hundreds of innocent people, well, they're absolutely terrifying. Catchy, but terrifying. Quote, And who are you, the proud lord said, that I must bow so low? Only a cat of a different coat, that's all the truth I know. 
In a coat of gold or a coat of red, a lion still has claws. And mine are long and sharp, my lord, as long and sharp as yours. And so he spoke, and so he spoke, that lord of Castamere. But now the rains weep o'er his hall, with no one there to hear. Yes, now the rains weep o'er his hall, and not a soul to hear. End quote. Two ancient family lines extinguished. Their castles destroyed. Thousands of people dead, and a song to remember it by. After all that, Tywin didn't have any more problems with his vassals. No half-measures, indeed. A couple of years later, Eris's father, King Jaehaerys, who had never been the healthiest of men, complains that he's short of breath, and then boom, he falls over and dies. Which means that all of a sudden, in the year 262 AC, when he's just 18 years old, Eris Targaryen is crowned King of Westeros. What a week that must have been, right? You wake up on Monday, probably thinking about all the you know boring little chores you've got to do over the next few days, and by the end of the week, your father is dead and you're the most powerful person on the planet. And you're so young that in the United States you wouldn't even be able to buy a beer. Anyway, if Eris is confused by the turn of events, he doesn't show it. Instead, he gets right to work. One of the first things he does is to fire a lot of his father's advisors. They were all older men, and Eris didn't want anything to do with them. As far as he was concerned, it was a new day in Westeros, and there was no room for some codgy old suits and their boring old ideas. Never mind their experience, it was time for some new blood. Change people could believe in, whether they wanted to or not. Now, in Westerosi government, there's a position called the Hand of the King. It's sort of like being the vice president, only with a lot more power. You know, way more Cheney than Quayle. So, who you pick to be your hand can have a huge impact on what you're able to get done. Pick a good one, and hey, it, it just might help the kingdom prosper. Pick a bad one, and the results can range from you having to do more than your fair share of work to, well, they write whole novellas about what happens then. Eris picks a good one. He looks around, considers his options, and thinks, well, maybe it should be one of the most impressive figures I've ever met in my entire life. Maybe it should be my old buddy Tywin Lannister. After all, that whole diverting a river to destroy your enemies trick worked out pretty well for the Westerlands. Maybe he'd be able to use some of that golden moxie to help me pull up Westeros by the bootstraps. And so he gives him a call. Well, he sends him a raven with a letter tied to its foot, but same thing. Tywin gets the message, he accepts, and all of a sudden you've got two 20-something war buddies running the realm. Seems like a recipe for disaster, right? Well, maybe. But for the next few years... The two of them do a great job. The economy is good. There are no major wars. They both get married, start having kids. Tywin's impotent father dies, which might seem like a negative, but since he was so poorly respected, it's actually a net positive for the Lannister name. All in all, Eris and Tywin are on a hot streak. Everything is going great. So great that it was easy for people to miss the fact that the coin that was flipped that day that Eris was born, well, it's almost as if well, way back then... When that coin was flipped, it landed on the ground and it started, you know, wobbling, spinning too fast for anyone to see which side it would end up on. And after a while, people got bored and forgot to pay attention to it, or they assumed it would turn out fine and went on with their lives, eventually forgetting that that coin even existed in the first place. But now, all these years later, it's starting to slow down. And for the first time, 
it's possible to see if it landed on greatness or madness. Have you ever seen someone lose their mind before? And I don't mean where they have a bad day at work and then act out and yell at the copier or something like that. I'm talking about a situation where their mental foundation, the building blocks of a person's identity, start to crack, where they start to fall apart. When I was a kid, I lived in a pretty decent suburb, and down my street there was this really nice house on the corner. It was a two-story Victorian with a great porch, green lawn, white picket fence, all of that. Then when I was around 10 years old, the family that lived there moved out and sold the place to a single guy. I never knew what his story was, but for whatever reason, he stopped taking care of the house. And at first, you really couldn't tell. I mean, maybe you'd notice that his lawn needed to be cut or something like that, but it was still the nice place on the corner. But as time went on, all of those little signs started to pile up, to the point that by the time I was a teenager, the house was just a ruin. The porch was rotting, the grass was dead, the fence was broken and peeling. I mean, if you put a before and after photo of that house next to each other and showed them to someone, they'd probably say, oh my God, how could anyone have let that happen? And the answer would be, because in real time, it was hard to see what all those little signs were adding up to. For the first 12 years or so of his rule, there weren't any major giveaways that Eris was starting to, well, completely unravel. You know, nothing specific anybody could point to and say, well, this guy is clearly losing his mind and maybe we should do something about this. Because at first, the signs were subtler than that. They were smaller. An unusually rude remark at a wedding. Or maybe an intentionally bad policy decision that he made out of spite. Stuff like that. Things that could be written off or chalked up to having too much to drink or waking up on the wrong side of the royal bed or just, you know, being a king and knowing you can get away with some bad behavior now and then just because you feel like it. After a while, though, the warning signs, the giveaways, started getting bigger and bigger until they couldn't be ignored anymore because they were anything but subtle or small or unusual even. They were just the way things were. Now, if you think of Eris' mental illness as an ember that eventually grew into a forest fire, well, there were a couple of things you can point to that, over the years, acted as a sort of gasoline, you could say, whipping that ember up into an all-consuming inferno. The first had to do with his wife. Eris, like a lot of his family, was a member of the Royal Incest Club. He was married to his sister, Raella Targaryen. They tied the knot when they were both teenagers, and from most accounts, everyone agrees that right from the start, it wasn't a very happy marriage. There was no spark, no, no juice. They just really didn't seem to care for one another. Plus, on top of that, Eris had a bit of a wandering eye, and he wasn't very discreet about it either. He had a reputation for sleeping around with not only ladies of the court, but women in his wife's staff, with zero consideration for how it would affect, the, you know, the, the stability of his home life. So they had an unhappy marriage. I mean, big deal, right? Lots of married people aren't happy, and they don't let it drive them crazy, or, you know, crazy enough to tear a kingdom apart. The real problem with Eris and Rayella's marriage wasn't just that it was unhappy. It was their kids, or more specifically, the lack thereof. Early on in their marriage, I mean, really early on, I believe when they were just 16 and 17, they had a son together. His name was Rhaegar, and he's going to prove to be vitally important to this story, but not for a few more years, so let's just go ahead and hammer a pin into him for later. So they have this one healthy son right out of the gate, and then a few years go by, they get a little older, they decide to have more kids, and one by one, slowly but surely, all of them die. 
It's a sad case of miscarriages or a baby being carried to term only to die shortly thereafter from illness or something similar to SIDS. Regardless, this pattern of losing royal children, it goes on for years. And it's the sort of horrifying situation that would be hard for anyone to process. I mean, not even just hard, it's, it's soul-crushing. And it would put an unbelievable amount of stress on even the healthiest of relationships. I mean, look at the marriage between Tsar Nicholas II and his wife Alexandra. They were famously in love and loved their children. And just the illness of their son Alexei, who had hemophilia, wound up affecting their decision and policy making so much that it became a major factor in the downfall of the Russian monarchy, which had existed for centuries prior to World War I. Eris and Rael Targaryen are starting from a far shakier position, and they're dealing with not just the illness of one child or of several, but the loss of every child. Plus, there's the additional mental burden that one of a king's main jobs is to produce as many male heirs as he can. I mean, daughters are important, too. Many of the alliances and truces throughout Westerosi history were sealed with marriages, so they're an important tool in any diplomat's arsenal, sometimes much to the daughter's chagrin. But for Eris, having any kids at all was even more important than usual because at that time, there just weren't a lot of Targaryens left running around. Through a combination of war, illness, and just plain bad luck, the last few generations of Targaryens had been extremely sparse. Heck, Eris's grandfather was named Aegon the Unlikely because he was the fourth son of a fourth son. A whole lot of people have to die or disappear in order for the crown to get that far down the royal family tree. So saying that Eris needed to reproduce as much as he could is almost an understatement. And at first, these deaths actually bring Eris and Rhaella closer. They've been through something terrible together. They're partners in grief. But after a while, as the number of funerals for unborn and recently born children starts to pile up, Eris starts to, well, he, he starts acting out. And again, don't get me wrong. Losing a child is horrific no matter who you are. King, commoner, it doesn't matter. This is the sort of thing that can break anybody, let alone somebody who's got the weight of history on his shoulders. But it's not the sort of thing that can make anybody think that that maybe God, or in this case, the gods, are trying to send them a message. That maybe these deaths aren't just random bad luck. Maybe they're a sign from above. That's when you cross a mental line from sadness into delusion, and it's exactly what Eris starts to believe. He starts thinking along the lines of, Well, obviously the gods wouldn't do anything to a child of mine. I'm a king, after all. So they must be punishing someone else, right? Well... The only other person involved in this is Rayella, so he figures she's the one they're punishing. But why? Now, here's where Eris's grief transforms into something much, much darker. He can't figure out the reason why the gods are punishing his wife, so he invents one. He becomes convinced that she's been cheating on him, and that the gods are simply killing off all these children because they aren't his. They're from these affairs, and they don't want a bastard sitting on the Iron Throne. I mean, can you imagine someone with the last name Waters sitting on the throne? Or Storm? Or Snow? The gods wouldn't stand for it. And if that's true, well, then he's going to have to do something about it, now isn't he? In the center of the Red Keep, there's a place called Magor's Holdfast. Magor was Aegon the Conqueror's son, and he was the guy who completed the Red Keep's construction. He was also a lunatic, who died in mysterious circumstances that could be best summarized as, I guess you could say, suicide by way of furniture. And that's not a metaphor, by the way. The Iron Throne was made of swords, but it's also a story for another time. Anyway, Magor's Holdfast was designed as a sort of 
bomb shelter against invaders. It's essentially a little castle within the actual castle of the Red Keep. Separate walls, a moat, the whole nine yards. It's the type of building that probably couldn't stop an invading army, but might be able to slow them down long enough for reinforcements to arrive and save whoever's inside. It's a panic room that's 12 stories high. If you've ever heard any of the descriptions of Hitler's bunker in Berlin, just imagine something 20 times the size of it and you'll have a pretty good idea of what Magor's Holdfast was like. Only, you know, above ground. This is where Eris has Raela locked up to prevent any further indiscretion. Inside the Holdfast, there's nothing for her to do, there's nowhere for her to go, and most importantly, at least to Eris, there's no way that he knows of that anybody can get in or out without his permission. And if that wasn't enough, he assigns two septas, which are basically Westerosi nuns, to sleep with her at night so that he can be absolutely sure she's not cheating on him. Of course, this doesn't change anything because Rayella wasn't having any affairs in the first place. All this talk of divine punishment and infidelity, this is all in Eris' imagination. It's in his head. The problem is that he's convinced it's real. So a year later, when they end up having another son, and then he dies like all the rest, well... It just, it really pushes him over the edge. He has the child's wet nurse beheaded. Because if it's not his wife's fault, it must be hers. Then he decides that, wait, no, probably not the wet nurse. You know what, it must be my concubine. I bet she wants one of her kids to get the iron thrown. And so he has her tortured to death. And then, just for good measure, he has her entire family tortured to death too. Locking your wife away with sleeping nun bodyguards? Cutting the nanny's heads off? Torturing your lover and her entire family to death? That's all a big, big step up from an occasionally inappropriate remark at a wedding, don't you think? I mean, these are things that not only cross that line between eccentricity and madness, but they hop on a bullet train to get past it. After he's done with murdering his former concubine and her family... Eris suddenly has a crisis of conscience. I mean, I can't imagine why. And he starts thinking that maybe he's gone too far, that his recent actions might have offended the gods. And so, to atone for all this bad stuff he's been up to, he walks barefoot across the entire city to a huge church called the Sept of Baylor. And once he gets there, he fasts and prays for three days before coming out and saying, Praise the Lord, he's found the gods. They've all come to an understanding, and from now on, there will be no more wandering eyes, no more cheating on his wife. He's going to be as faithful as faithful can be. It's never a good sign when you go from torturing a family to death to being born again in less than a week. That's the sort of mental ping-ponging that nowadays we'd charitably call a manic episode. And while all this is going on, there's something else that's stoking that ember of madness, and that's the fact that Tywin Lannister is proving to be too good at his job. Now, you'd think that shouldn't be a problem, but then again, Eris has just murdered a whole bunch of people because he imagined that his wife had been stepping out on him. So from now on, it's safe to say that everything is potentially not just a problem, but a big one, and Tywin's no exception. At first, Eris and Tywin, they'd been a team. Sort of a real, well, a dynamic duo, honestly. But as time went on, it became clear that that wasn't the case at all. Tywin was the real mastermind, and anything good that's come out of Eris' reign as king has come about because of Tywin's insight and ability. And reading about his career during this time period, 
Well, it's like watching Michael Jordan play basketball. I mean, there's just nobody who can touch him in terms of skill. There's nobody who even comes close. He's been fixing up infrastructure, staging tournaments across the country, passing laws that shore up businesses, making great alliances. I mean, like him or hate him, he's just an unbelievably talented ruler. And that's not just my opinion. It was obvious even to Taiwan's contemporaries. For instance, there's an academic class in Westeros called the Meisters. They're sort of like professors, researchers, historians, and doctors all rolled into one. I mean, just about everything we know about Westeros comes down to us from the Meisters, which is why you keep hearing me reference Meisters Martin, Meister Antonson, Meister Garcia II, etc., etc., etc. But they're not just important for people like me. All the big houses have a Meister on staff, and it's their job to teach the kids reading and writing, to heal the sick, advise the house lord, all that sort of stuff. Now, the Meisters are based out of a city in the south of Westeros called Old Town. That's where they've got their, well, I guess it's sort of like a campus, but it's called the Citadel, and it's where they train new members, do research, monitor the seasons, that sort of thing. But traditionally, they've also got one of their higher-ups stationed at court on the King's Small Council. It's a position called the Grand Meister, which, sort of a pretentious title, honestly, but during Eris's rule, the Grand Meister is a guy named Meister Passell. And after Pissell observes Tywin on the job, he writes to his superiors in Old Town and says, quote, The gods have molded and shaped this man to rule. I mean, what an endorsement that is. It's as if a Nobel Prize winner looked at what the president was doing and said, I can't possibly think of any way to improve on what's already going on with this guy. Now, like I was saying, Tywin being so good at his job has a couple of unfortunate side effects. The first is that he's able to fix up any of the numerous mistakes that Eris sort of blunders his way into. For instance, remember Bravos? It's one of the free cities that we talked about in the last episode. Well, it's home to a financial institution called the Iron Bank. And the Iron Bank is, well, it's basically the Goldman Sachs of the Westerosi world if Goldman Sachs wasn't afraid of starting a war, killing a king or two because someone owed them money. And that's not hyperbole. There's plenty of documentation of people, powerful people, princes even, defaulting on a loan to the Iron Bank or refusing to pay it back or whatever, and then a short time later, that prince winds up dead and the new one, who just happens to be approved by the bank, takes his place and the debt gets paid. And they don't even have to resort to these sorts of tactics to get what they want because they're the ones who control a huge chunk of the world's credit. They take too big to fail to new levels. They're an integral part of the global flow of money. And if they get upset with you, they can just turn that flow off and throw the financial markets into chaos. So if you're a Westerosi world leader, you really don't want the Iron Bank getting angry with you. Q. Eris Targaryen. A few years into his rule, the Iron Bank comes to Westeros to talk to Eris about some debt that the crown owes. And Eris basically tells them to get lost. He's a king, after all. And if he doesn't want to repay a loan, well, then what are they going to do about it? Which, at best, is a delusional stance to take, because as we've already established, the Iron Bank is famous for what they'll do about it. Tywin hears about this, goes behind Eris's back, pays the crown's debt using Lannister gold, and basically smooths the whole thing over. It's a bold move that not only potentially saves Eris's life, but also avoids Westeros to avoid its own version of the 2008 financial crisis. Now, why is doing something like that an unfortunate side effect of Tywin's ability as leader? Well, because it gives the impression to the realm at large that Eris is actually doing a great job as king. I mean, around the Red Keep, it's almost like a sitcom. 
the adventures of the wacky king who just can't help but cause problems, and his uptight friend who's always cleaning up after him. But away from court, out in the country, or in the smaller cities, as far as the common folk know, Eris is doing great. The problem with that, though, is that it creates a situation where there's never any pressure on Eris to change his behavior, right? I mean, if you act a certain way and nothing bad happens because of it, well, you'll probably just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Add to that the fact that, in general, kings don't have a lot of people telling them to shape up or ship out, and there's really no incentive for Eris to change. And that's a very, very dangerous situation for pretty much everybody in the kingdom besides Eris Targaryen. And then there's just plain old-fashioned jealousy. Because even if most of the realm thought he was doing a great job, in his gut, Eris had to know the truth. And that's the sort of thing that can really eat away at someone. Especially if that person has been raised to believe that they're ordained by the gods to be the best leader alive. Having your best friend be living, breathing proof to the contrary? Well, that's got a sting. And what's almost worse is that after a while, even the common folks start picking up on the fact that Eris might not actually be the one who's calling all the shots. And they start talking about it. They spread rumors. They gossip. They say that Eris isn't the real king at all. It's Tywin Lannister. He's the one running the kingdom. One of the problems with gossip is that eventually it's going to make its way back to someone that it shouldn't. And eventually, Eris gets wind of the fact that people are saying that sort of stuff and it drives him nuts. Well, more nuts. And he starts making intentionally bad policy decisions just to spite Tywin. Tywin gives him some advice. Eris does the opposite. Tywin recommends someone get appointed to an important post. They don't get the job. And so on. It gets so bad that Eris intentionally screws up the tax law that governs shipping fees. And when people show up in court to complain about it, he blames the decision entirely on Tywin. Just throws him right under the wagon. Then reverses the decision and takes all the credit for saving the day. Meister Antonson actually describes the whole situation by saying, and, and there's a word in here I don't usually use, so if you're at work or around kids, you might want to lower your volume. But, quote, over his hand's strenuous objections, the king doubled the port fees at King's Landing and Old Town and tripled them for Lannisport and the realm's other ports and harbors. When a delegation of small lords and rich merchants came before the Iron Throne to complain, however, Eris blamed the hand for the exactions, saying, Lord Tywin shits gold, but of late he has been constipated and has had to find some other way to fill our coffers. Whereupon his grace restored port fees and tariffs to their previous levels, earning much acclaim for himself and leaving Tywin Lannister the opprobrium. End quote. That's no way to run a kingdom. Heck, that's no way to run anything. And while all of this is going on, Eris's occasional fascination with torture, well, he gets a bit more serious about it. Kicks it up from a passing interest to a full-on hobby. For instance, one night the chief of Tywin's guard, a guy named Illin Payne, has a bit too much to drink and tells some guys at the bar something along the lines of what everyone else in the realm is already saying, but stuff like, hey, you know what, my boss is so good at his job, he's the one who's really the king, not Eris. Well, Eris hears about this, and what do you think he does? Laugh it off? Ignore it? Chalks it up to, to one of the guys having too many beers? Not quite. He has Illin bound in chains, dragged into the dungeons, and then has his guards rip Illin's tongue out of his head with hot pinchers. If you're anything like me, you've never had your tongue ripped out of your head with hot pinchers before. I can't even imagine what that must feel like. But what's even harder to imagine is even giving the order in the first place. 
being responsible for another human being getting their tongue torn out of their mouth? That's crazy. But it's also sort of a power play on Eris's part. Because, in a way, being sworn to a specific house is sort of like a gang or being in the mafia. You mess with us, you mess with our entire family. It's the same thing here. An insult to any one of Tywin's guys is an insult not only to House Lannister, but to Tywin himself. And the last time someone disrespected him that badly, he literally threw an entire river on their head. But Eris isn't just anybody. He's the king. And so when he tortures Ill in pain, he's basically saying, Hey, look at what I just did. I messed with one of your top guys and there's nothing you can do about it. Which to a guy like Tywin Lannister has got to be absolutely infuriating. At this point, Eris is far enough gone that it's tempting to write off everything he does as just being the whim of a madman. But the way he treats Tywin, it just goes deeper than that. Eris wasn't just doing one or two crazy things here or there that happened to affect Tywin. He was engaging in a long, drawn-out, sustained campaign of nastiness and cruelty towards him. All because he was jealous. And that jealousy was also fueled by stuff that didn't have anything to do with their work. For starters, Tywin's got two kids, twins. A boy and a girl named Jamie and Cersei, who were born right around the same time that Eris's son Rhaegar was. And you gotta think that, at first, this probably brought Tywin and Eris closer together. That's how it goes with young dads, right? They could talk about the same things. Changing diapers, not getting any sleep, daycare, regular parent-type stuff. But, and, and this is just speculation on my part here, but after a while, as Eris kept trying and failing to have another kid, I bet he started thinking things like, Well, why does Tywin get two healthy kids and I only get one? I mean, if you think the reason your kids keep dying is because the gods are punishing you and the guy next to you has two healthy children, wouldn't you feel a little bit like the gods were trying to rub it in your face? This had to be the sort of thing that just ate away at Eris day after day. And there's something else, too. Tywin's wife, a, a woman by the name of Joanna Lannister, she was a first cousin of Tywin's, which doesn't quite have the same ew factor for the Westerosi that it does for us. I mean, incest is a huge taboo in Westeros, the lone exception being the Targaryens, who got around that rule by conquering the country. But short of that, getting caught messing around with an immediate family member could ruin your life. But when it came to first cousins, the general population had a more Rooseveltian view of the matter. I mean, don't forget, marriages were a political tool, and if for whatever reason, say there weren't any houses worth marrying into at the moment, a lot of families would marry in-house instead, as a way of consolidating power. Anyway, by all accounts, Joanna Lannister was a special human being, and she must have been because she seemed to be the only person that Tywin would listen to. I mean, this was a guy who really didn't take too much advice from anybody, and yet when it came to Joanna, well, after they got married, he seemed to mellow out quite a bit. One of Joanna's childhood friends picked up on this change and said, quote, As hand of the king, Lord Tywin rules the Seven Kingdoms, but is ruled at home by his lady wife. And remember that rumor I told you about earlier, about how one of the only times Tywin ever smiled was when he killed the Tarbex with a roof? Well, again, supposedly, one of the only other times he smiled was when he married Joanna. Tywin was just crazy about her. The problem was, he wasn't the only one. Eris had a, I don't know what you'd call it, obsession, maybe? But Eris had an obsession with Joanna. One of his knights later described it as not love, but as a wanting, which is certainly an unnerving description. 
And remember, he was never afraid of being inappropriate with women, married or otherwise. Joanna was no exception to that rule. He said things to her in public that were more like the sort of thing you'd hear from a drunk frat boy at a party, not a king addressing his most powerful aide's wife. For instance, after hearing that Joanna had given birth to healthy twins, Eris said, I appear to have married the wrong woman. Or take this story related by Meister Garcia II. Quote, At the great anniversary tourney of 272 AC, held to commemorate Eris's tenth year upon the Iron Throne, Joanna Lannister brought her six-year-old twins, Jamie and Cersei, from Casterly Rock to present before the court. The king, very much in his cups, asked her if giving suck to them had ruined your breasts, which were so high and proud. The question greatly amused Lord Tywin's rivals, who were always pleased to see the hand slighted or made mock of, but Lady Joanna was humiliated. End quote. And she wasn't the only one. Tywin was so upset by what Eris said that that night he actually offers his resignation. And Eris refuses to accept it! Which has always struck me as more than a little odd, because Eris didn't have to keep Tywin around. He was the one who gave him the job in the first place. He could have taken it away at any point, but he didn't. Did he not realize how bad things had gotten between the two of them? Did he just like having Tywin nearby so he could humiliate him from time to time? Or was it something else entirely? I mean, when Eris looked at Tywin, maybe he saw a link to his past. A past that, compared to his ever-deteriorating present, he must have been pretty nostalgic for. I could speculate for hours about the why behind Eris's refusal to accept Tywin's resignation, but the truth is that nobody knows. So instead of shaking hands and parting ways, Eris keeps Tywin around and slowly but surely, their once incredibly strong friendship gets stretched thinner and thinner until a year later, something causes it to snap and it breaks apart forever. That something is Joanna Lannister who dies giving birth to Eris's, excuse me, sorry, to Tywin's third child. And not only does she die, but the child who, at least in Tywin's eyes, killed her is born a dwarf. One of the more unpleasant aspects of Westeros, and there are unfortunately quite a few of them, is that being born different from the norm in any sort of way wasn't accepted. It was seen as a profound weakness, not just for the child, but for the child's parents as well. Which means that, normally, if a child turned out to be a dwarf, there's a good chance that its parents would just leave him out in the woods as a snack for the dire wolves. But Tywin Lannister can't do that. He's too powerful, too well-known. Behavior like that is for the common folk, not someone of his stature. And so no matter how much he might want to accidentally get rid of this kid, and believe me, he really wanted to, he can't. He's stuck with him. Almost immediately, people start mocking Tywin for having what they see as a less-than-perfect son. They say that he was born with a tail that had to be cut off after the birth. They call the child Lord Tywin's Doom and Lord Tywin's Bane. Tywin's father was mocked. Tywin's father was laughed at, and it left Tywin with the desire to make sure that nobody ever did the same to him or his house. He's sort of like Marty McFly. You know, who would be calm and collected, and all of a sudden somebody called him a chicken, and he instantly went from zero to a hundred on the insanely angry meter. Same deal here, only instead of being a, you know, charming, time-traveling teenager, Tywin Lannister's the guy who diverted a river to drown an entire village because he felt people weren't taking House Lannister seriously enough. But his newborn son gives people the chance to do exactly that. 
Add to that the fact that his birth led to the death of the only woman that Tywin ever loved, and it means that before this baby is even a day old, there's already someone who genuinely hates him, and that person is his own father. It's complicated, isn't it? I mean, how would you feel towards the person who killed the only woman you ever loved? You could write entire books about the, um, you know, the pathos that fuels that sort of relationship. Oh, and before I forget, the child's name is Tyrion Lannister. Although, it won't take long before people start referring to him as the Imp. Now, you might say that that bad and terrible thing is all well and good, but what does it have to do with Tywin and Aerys' friendship? Well, when Aerys hears about Joanna's death, what do you think he does? Does he send his condolences? Does he strap a sympathy card to a raven and send it along with some flowers? Not even close. Instead, when he gets the news that the wife of his best friend has died, tragically, he says, quote, The gods cannot abide such arrogance. They have plucked a fair flower from his hand and given him a monster in her place to teach him some humility at last. I mean, that isn't exactly the sort of thing you say about your friend, or even your worst enemy, now is it? I mean, those aren't just fighting words. That's the kind of public insult that sends people to war. And let's not forget, the whole reason the Targaryens are in power is because somebody insulted Aegon by refusing to marry his buddy Oris, and this insult is much colder and much, much more personal than that. Word of what the king said eventually makes its way back to Casterly Rock. And Tywin, well, he's stuck. He can't go to war. He evidently can't resign. He basically just has to pick up his proverbial suitcase, go into his proverbial office, and pretend like nothing happened. But as far as he's concerned, their friendship of decades is finished. Forever. Eris just burned it to the ground. From now on, the two of them are just co-workers with history. Nothing more. Although maybe a bit less. Two years later, Eris finally has another child. Or rather, he has another child that lives past infancy. His name is Viserys, and people around the court had kind of hoped that having another kid around would help calm Eris down, that maybe the arrival of another male heir would relieve the pressure that was driving him mad. No such luck. Eris becomes convinced that someone would try and poison Viserys, so nobody was allowed to touch him. Even Rhaella, his own mother, had to get permission before she picked him up. A knight was to stand guard over the crib 24 hours a day. Celebratory presents that were sent from noble lords all across the realm are thrown into a pile and set on fire, just in case they're cursed. And when Rayella is unable to provide milk and they have to use a wet nurse, Eris has his food taster actively preview her breasts, just in case someone smeared poison on them. And these two years haven't improved things between Tywin and Eris. In fact, by this point, it's sort of common knowledge that if you want to get in good with the king, well, just go ahead and make a little joke at Tywin's expense. So now, on some level, despite doing everything in his power to avoid it, Tywin's become the butt of an unending stream of jokes. And even worse, they're coming from the king and his sycophants at court. But that didn't mean that Tywin stopped being Tywin. He was still determined to make sure that House Lannister was the greatest, most respected house in all of Westeros. So after Viserys was born, Tywin holds a huge tournament in his honor. One of the people to complete in the lists, and the events, is Rhaegar Targaryen, 
who, it's a bit interesting, you know, Rhaegar was apparently pretty bookish in his younger years, but then one day, out of the blue, so the story goes, he walked up to the court master at arms and said that he needed to be a warrior when he grew up. Well, now he's grown up, and he's turned into quite the warrior. So much so, that during this tournament at Casterly Rock, he does pretty well against some tough, tough opponents, which in turn puts Eris into a rare good mood. Gets to brag to his buddies about how great his son did, that's always nice. And so, later that night, thinking that the timing probably couldn't get any better, Tywin pitches the idea that his daughter Cersei and Eris's son Rhaegar get engaged. Now, there are polite ways to rebuff a proposal like that. Ways that are a definitive rejection, but not too insulting. Ways that make sure that nobody, well, well that nobody takes it too personally. Eris doesn't use any of them. Instead, he says, you're a good servant, Tywin, but one does not marry his children to the help. Tywin Lannister was one of the most powerful lords in Westeros. If you're going to marry your son to someone other than his sister, you'd have a hard time doing better than Cersei Lannister. But Eris didn't care. He wasn't interested in finding a good match for Rhaegar. He was interested in the same thing he's been interested in since he had Illyn Payne's tongue ripped out. He wants to dress Tywin down to cut him off at the knees, to humiliate him, to show that he's the big dog in this relationship and therefore in all of Westeros. Tywin Lannister was someone who believed, strongly, and perhaps too strongly, but he believed in the hierarchy of power within a monarchy. He was a classist. Commoners aren't worth as much as a lord. Lords aren't worth as much as a great lord. Great lords aren't worth as much as a king. That's it. And so no matter what he thought about what Eris was doing, he still respected his position and what it represented. And the ultimate proof of that is Tywin could be brutal when his honor was at stake. And despite suffering insults for years, he never once plotted to overthrow the throne or stage a coup or hire assassins or stage a fatal accident or anything even remotely like that. Instead, he did his absolute best to make sure that Eris's reign was a successful one. If there's something more you can ask of from a hand of the king, I don't know what it is. But that didn't matter to Eris. He wasn't able to see that. He wasn't able to see that out of everyone in the realm, or at least certainly everyone at court, Tywin was probably his biggest supporter. Instead, I think that, over the years, whenever he looked at Tywin, Eris saw everything that he wasn't, but wanted to be. It was like Tywin was a living reflection of his failures. And yet, for whatever reason, he refused to let Tywin leave. And this is when we come to the event that, um, well, okay, you all know who Howard Hughes was, right? Phenomenally rich guy, made movies, The Spruce Goose, owned TWA, ended up living in a hotel in Las Vegas, collecting his urine in jars and refusing to cut his toenails. You know, there's that uh, Scorsese movie about him called The Aviator, Leonardo DiCaprio. Well, Howard Hughes and Eris Targaryen actually have a lot in common. For instance, when he was younger, Hughes was also seen as a brash, inspiring leader. A ladies' man with big ideas, lots of charm, and tons of personality. And he was also someone who struggled with mental illness for his entire life. Early on, these issues were there. They were noticeable, but they weren't debilitating. They were what made people call him eccentric. Until when he was in his 40s, he got into a nasty plane crash and suffered a pretty bad head injury. And from then on, he was a different person. 
His mental illness leveled up from eccentric to collecting his own urine in jars. You know, and now his quirks aren't just a feature of his personality. They were his personality, and they consumed his entire life. Eris Targaryen's plane crash, if you will, happened in a town called Duskendale. Now, there's a little history involved here. Surprising, I know, but bear with me. Duskendale was a town a few miles north of King's Landing. It was sort of like King's Landing version 1.0. It used to be a major trading port near the mouth of the Blackwater River, but then Aegon the Conqueror showed up, built King's Landing on the mouth of the Blackwater River, and slowly but surely, all the business got pulled south away from Duskendale. By the time Eris shoots down Tywin's marriage proposal uh, between their children, Duskendale is just bleeding profits. It's like a mining town after the mine runs dry. And the Lord of Duskendale is this younger guy named Dennis Darklin. He looks around, takes stock of the situation, and decides to try and turn things around. He requests a charter from the crown so that his port can have a little more autonomy and a little more of the profits can flow back into the local economy. Tywin's the one who gets the request, and he shoots it down. He doesn't want to set a precedent because he's pretty sure that if he gives Duskendale a charter, well, pretty soon, every town that's got anything from a port to a fishing dock will be asking for the same thing. Can't have that. So, Dennis thought up an idea, pitched it to the powers that be, and it didn't work out. Time to think of something else, right? Some new plan. Seems pretty straightforward to me, but Dennis doesn't do that. Instead of accepting no for an answer, he goes in a different direction. He stops paying taxes and sends a message to the court basically saying, hey, if you want your money, then the king is going to have to come up here and talk the whole thing out with me. Now, there are people who think that this wasn't Dennis's idea at all, that it was actually his wife who put him up to it. She was a foreigner from a place called Mir who was known as the Lace Serpent. And these people will say, oh, you know, Dennis could never have done this on his own. That wife must have tricked him into thinking it was a good idea. You know, she probably traded strange, sinful favors for influence in his household. You know how those Mirish women are. She got his head all twisted around so he couldn't even think straight. Personally, I don't believe any of it. Westeros, while an incredibly interesting place, is also, unfortunately, not great to or for women. They get the short end of the stick in just about every aspect of life, and their place in history is no exception. So yes, there are rumors that Dennis's wife is the one who made him defy Tywin and the crown, but again, my opinion is that that's just people looking back at what happened and saying, well, there's simply no way a man did something that stupid, even though a prevailing theme throughout history in general is men doing something stupid over and over and over again. You, valued listener, are, as always, free to believe what you like. But regardless of where the idea came from, it's easy to see what Dennis was at least trying to do. By this point, the entire kingdom knew about the rift between Eris and Tywin, and while some Meisters are in disagreement about this, it seems fairly obvious to me that Dennis was trying to exploit that rift. He seemed to be thinking something along the lines of, well, surely the king won't come up here to deal with something like this. I'll bet he'll send Tywin Lannister instead. And if he won't listen to reason, well, then maybe Eris won't mind if things get a little physical. Tywin gets the request and dismisses it out of hand. It's just so obviously a trap. But then Eris somehow hears about it, asks what's going on, and rift or no, I can only imagine that Tywin had to have said something along the lines of, oh, it's nothing, just an obvious trap from Dennis Darklin who must think we're the dumbest people of all time, but Eris doesn't even let Tywin finish. 
He's too busy rushing off to prove Dennis right. Because he doesn't see this as a trap. He sees it as an opportunity. To Eris, this is a chance to show the entire realm that he doesn't need Tywin's help being a leader. That he's perfectly capable of handling tricky matters of state all by himself. And so he doesn't ignore Duskendale's defiance or send Tywin to deal with it, even though this is the sort of thing Tywin can handle in his sleep. Instead, he gets a few nights together and heads north to show everybody how a real ruler gets things done. Now, imagine you're Dennis Darklin. You're a younger guy, the lord of a dwindling but still important city, and you just sent out what, to your mind, probably seemed like an extremely clever trap. And then one morning, you wake up to a knock at the door, and you probably think to yourself, well, 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 looks like Tywin Lannister was no match for the wits of one Dennis Darklin after all, and you open the door. Remember when you're a kid and you do something you know you shouldn't and it goes wrong? You know, when the BB gun goes off too early, or the baseball crashes through the neighbor's window, and there's that sinking moment in your gut when you realize beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're about to be in really big trouble? Well, I can only imagine that that's what Dennis Darklin felt like, times a million, when he opened his door expecting to see foolish old Tywin Lannister and came face to face with King Aerys Targaryen instead. There were a lot of reasonable things Dennis could have done in that moment. He could have apologized and started paying his taxes. He could have fallen to the floor and begged for mercy. Heck, he could have even gone ahead and tried to talk the king into granting him a charter. But instead of doing any of that, he panicked in a major way. He has his guards kill all of Eris's men, kidnaps Eris, throws him in an underground prison, puts the whole city on lockdown, and sends out word that if anyone tries to storm the city, he'll kill the king immediately. And everyone knows that he can make good on that promise. Because even though its economic power was waning, Duskendale would not be an easy city to take by force. It would take an invading army a lot of time to break through the city walls, not to mention to get into the impressive castle within those walls that the Darklands lived in, a place called the Dunfort. All of which would give Dennis plenty of time to slit the king's throat if he felt like he needed to. So even though Dennis was now in serious trouble, he still had a slight chance of making it out alive. A captive king can give you that kind of leverage. Word of what happens quickly makes its way through the kingdom, and when Tywin hears about it down in King's Landing, he, well, first he probably runs through a thousand different ways of how he's going to say the mother of all I told you so's, but then he gathers an army together and marches up to Duskendale. When he gets there, Lord Dennis sends out his envoys to Parley to negotiate, but Tywin won't meet with them. He's a no-negotiating-with-terrorists type of guy. So instead of hearing the envoys out, he sends back word that the only terms he's willing to accept are a complete and unconditional surrender of the town and the safe release of the king. Then he plops his army down on Duskendale's supply line, and he waits. Six months go by. People in Duskendale are getting nervous. Supplies are running low. Pretty soon they'll be entirely gone, out of food and starving. And the whole time, Eris is sitting in a prison, alone, rotting, never sure if he's about to die or not. I mean, enduring that kind of stress could cause even the sanest of people to unravel, and this is King Eris Targaryen. But even after six months, Dennis doesn't budge. So when Tywin does end up sending over an envoy, Dennis must have thought, See, I told you guys that he'd cave eventually. But he's wrong again. Tywin's terms haven't changed, but his timeline has. He's tired of waiting. 
Dennis now has one day to agree to the earlier terms of complete surrender, or Tywin is going to storm the town and execute every single man, woman, and child within its walls. And yet, despite all of that, Dennis still refuses to surrender. Which, some people have argued, is actually exactly what Tywin was hoping for. Because by this point, he's been watching Eris mentally deteriorate for years, without any signs of improvement. And meanwhile, his son Rhaegar is shaping up to be a pretty decent guy. So if Eris died and Rhaegar became king? Well, from Tywin's point of view, maybe that's not such a bad deal. It might be great for him and for the realm. And to back this theory up, there's a somewhat credible story that some of his advisors start arguing that they can't storm the town because if they do, Dennis will almost certainly kill the king. At which point, Tywin is supposed to have said, He may or he may not, but if he does, we have a better king right here. And he pointed straight at Rhaegar Targaryen. Regardless, it doesn't come to that because a member of the King's Guard, a guy by the name of Barristan Selmy, also known as Ser Barristan the Bold, hears what's going on and he offers to sneak into Duskendale by himself and smuggle Eris out to safety. And the fact that Tywin allowed him to try indicates to me that maybe he hadn't completely written Eris off yet. Because even though the odds were astronomically against Barristan succeeding, you don't get nicknamed The Bold if you're not capable of occasionally pulling off something that other people consider impossible. Or, maybe Tywin let him try simply so he could say he had exhausted every other option, and he really had to storm the town. We'll never know, because Barristan manages to pull off the impossible. He sneaks into Duskendale, past the city walls, past the guards, finds Eris in the middle of an underground prison, breaks him out, kills a bunch of knights, single-handedly, I might add, then throws himself and the king on a horse and battles his way out of town. Years later, though, Barristan will, if not flat-out regret saving the king, he'll at least begin to question if it was, you know, ultimately the right thing to do. If maybe, at the end of the day, the realm might have been better served if Eris had never made it out of that prison alive. If maybe Tywin was right, and there was a better king than Eris just waiting in the wings. Because whatever shreds of sanity Eris managed to hold on to over the years, by the time Barrison gets to him, they're all long gone. They've been erased, wiped out. That ember of madness has grown into a raging inferno. Meister Garcia II details the change that those six months had on Eris, saying, quote, Captivity at Duskendale had shattered whatever sanity had remained to Eris II Targaryen. From that day forth, the king's madness reigned unchecked, growing worse with every passing year. The Darklands had dared lay hands upon his person, shoving him roughly, stripping him of his royal raiment, even daring to strike him. After his release, King Eris would no longer allow himself to be touched, even by his own servants. Uncut and unwashed, his hair grew ever longer and more tangled, whilst his fingernails lengthened and thickened into grotesque yellow talons. He forbade any blade in his presence, save the swords carried by the knights of his Kingsguard sworn to protect him. His judgments became harsher and crueler. End quote. Another way you could describe the situation is to say that it was Eris Targaryen that went into the prisons of Duskendale, but it was the Mad King who came out. And as a sort of debutante ball for this newfound total madness, as a way for it to be formally introduced to the realm, Eris has Lord Dennis Darkland tortured to death. But, I mean, big deal, right? He's been doing that sort of thing for years at this point. 
But it doesn't stop there. Every Darkland in the city is killed. Tortured. And it didn't matter if you were a distant relative or even had a different last name. If you shared any blood with Dennis Darkland, you fell victim to the Mad King's rage. And the person who got the worst of it was, not surprisingly, Dennis's wife, the Lace Serpent. After she's captured, Eris has his men tie her to a stake in the center of town. He has her breasts torn off of her chest. He has her genitals ripped out of her body. And then he has her set on fire and burned alive. And you might hear all that and say, well, so what? How is that any crazier than what Tywin did ten years earlier to the Reigns? Or what he planned to do to everyone in Duskendale if Dennis didn't surrender? How is torturing one family any crazier than potentially executing an entire town full of innocents? Isn't Eris sending a message, just like Tywin would have, that this is what happens when you kidnap a king? Why is it that we forgive one man's terrible actions and condemn another's? Well, I've thought about this a bit, and there's... There's something I keep coming back to, something I can't quite get past. Tywin Lannister could be cruel, there's no doubt about that. But there was almost always a point to his cruelty. It wasn't ever arbitrary, it was almost evilly pragmatic. With Eris, it's different. When he tortures the Darklands, you get the sense that he'd been waiting for something like this to happen. And not just because it was a way of getting revenge or because he was sending a message, which are justifications that I still disagree with, but are ones that I can at least, you know, wrap my mind around. No. With Eris, it seems like his primary reason for doing this stuff was that he enjoyed it. That he liked watching these people suffer. For him, hurting other people wasn't pragmatic. It was pleasurable. And from then on, it was also normal. After he returns to court, Eris succumbs to complete paranoia. He's ruled by delusions, and nobody is safe. He turns against his own son and accuses Rhaegar of working with Tywin to depose him and starts treating him as, was well, more of an adversary than a son. For instance, uh, Rhaegar ends up marrying a Dornish noblewoman by the name of Elia Martell. It's a good match. House Martell is the great house of Dorne, but really not greater than any of the other major houses, as I'm sure Tywin Lannister was well aware. And the two of them are married in the great Sept of Baelor, and Eris doesn't even attend. I mean, despite the fact that, as he himself proved, it's within walking distance of the Red Keep. He doesn't let Viserys attend either. Or how about this? After Elia and Rhaegar have a child, a daughter named Rhaenys, Eris refuses to touch her because he claims that she, quote, smells Dornish. And Eris's paranoia doesn't stop with friends and family anymore. Everywhere he looks, he sees people plotting against him. It gets so bad that he has a spymaster from Essos brought to court, a guy by the name of Varys, also known as the Spider, and he has him set up a surveillance network in order to catch potential traitors. Which is a, that's a pretty wide net. I mean, you get drunk and say something mean about the king, well, you might be a traitor. In which case, you're brought to court and burned alive. Across the realm, the idea, the, the illusion that Eris is doing a good job, fades away. He goes from being beloved to being feared, and the common folks start referring to him as the Mad King. Or King Scab, because just about every time he sits on the Iron Throne, he manages to cut himself on it. Take that metaphor for what you will. And yet, throughout all of this, Tywin remains by his side, as eternal as a mountain. 
Even though things between him and Eris have never been worse, Eris won't even meet with Tywin anymore unless all seven members of his Kingsguard are present. He thinks it's too dangerous. That given the opportunity, Tywin won't hesitate to kill him. Which is ironic, because it's right around this time that Eris manages to kill Tywin. Well, at least emotionally kill him, you know, by, by doing something so unexpected, so monumentally terrible, that in a way it transcends madness and becomes an action of, oh, of a kind of cruel genius. He honors Tywin's son, Jaime, by appointing him to the King's Guard. Now, by this point, Jamie Lannister is 15 years old and a newly made knight. 15 was pretty young to be knighted, even for the son of a great lord like Tywin. But Jamie's a little different. He's, well, he's sort of like the LeBron James of knights. You know, everyone who meets him just knows that this kid was going to be one of the greats. I mean, he's an awesome swordsman. He's squired for the best knights in the realm. He was actually knighted by the best knight in the realm, a man named, and this is easily the coolest name ever, a man named Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning. And ever since Jamie was a little kid, being a knight, it's all he's ever talked about. And sure, lots of kids dream about that. But Jamie's actually got the skill to maybe pull some version of it off. Now, about that honor I was talking about. I, I mentioned the Kingsguard earlier, but I might not have sold just how, well, how monumentally well-respected they were at the time. I mean, these are the guys that are known across the entire realm as being the best, most honorable knights in the entire world. And there are former members that are so well-revered, they're practically legends. They've got songs written about them, countless stories of their adventures and heroism that have been passed on for generations. They have names like the Pale Griffin, or the Dragon Knight, or Sir Duncan the Tall. Although I guess being named the Tall isn't quite as great as Dragon Knight, but still, you get the point. Being a member of the King's Guard means that a king will send you out to command parts of his army, or to hunt down a particularly nasty outlaw, or, or being a person who will usually dominate over normal knights at a tourney. Basically, these guys are like the Navy SEALs and the New York Yankees and the Secret Service all rolled into one. Which is why when Eris decides to make Jamie a member of their very elite club, well, to a kid his age, this is a dream come true. But it has exactly the opposite effect on Tywin. He's not just mad about it. He's apocalyptically ticked off. And you'd be forgiven for wondering why. I mean, after all, didn't Eris just do Tywin a massive favor by making his son the youngest member of the most elite group of warriors in history? A Lannister just got set up to be remembered forever as one of the best of the best. Shouldn't someone like Tywin, who's obsessed with making the Lannister name unimpeachable, be thanking Eris? Not quite. Because if people are going to write songs about you and remember you forever and give you cool names like the Dragon Knight, well, there's got to be a catch, right? And in this case, it's a big one. When you join the Kingsguard, not only do you agree to serve for life with no chance to retire or quit until you die, but you also agree that protecting the king will be your only reason for living, period. And to make sure that the Knights of the Kingsguard stay focused on that one thing, and that one thing only, once they agree to join, they make a series of legally binding vows, in public, that they can't marry, they can't have children, and they cannot inherit any of their family's land, fortune, or titles. In Westeros, being a firstborn son is a big deal. It means you're automatically first in line to inherit whatever power and titles your father's got. And it also means that one day you're going to be the one running the house, taking care of the day-to-day -day problems, making sure it survives and prospers, etc. 
It's a little different in Dorne, where they don't care about the sex as much. Son, daughter, the only thing that matters to them is who was born first. But everywhere else, it's only the firstborn son that matters. And that's why being a member of the Kingsguard is the perfect job for a second or third or even fourthborn son of an important house. Lords have this problem all the time, where they have a lot of kids, a lot of sons, and then they just don't know what to do with them. They've got to figure out who inherits what, what sort of jobs they're going to do, who they're going to marry, where they're going to live, etc., etc., etc. So if you're, say, the third son of some lord and you get appointed to the king's guard, well, you just save your dad a whole lot of time and headache. And you brought a wagon full of honor to your house in the process. It's a great deal. It's a win-win. But if you're the firstborn son, if you're, say, Jamie Lannister... Well, that means everything that you were set to inherit, which includes ownership of Casterly Rock, an enormous fortune, power over the western half of the entire continent, and stewardship of the Lannister name. Basically, everything your father spent his whole life working for. Well, you just gave it all up and passed it to the next guy in line, who in this case is your younger brother, Tyrion Lannister, the Imp. Tyrion inheriting Casterly Rock is Tywin's doomsday scenario. He's been working at restoring honor to the Lannister name since he was a teenager, and there's no way, just absolutely no way, that he's going to pass it along to, as Tywin would probably describe him, some twisted little creature that killed the only woman he ever loved. He'd die before letting that happen. And Eris knows that. He knows it, and he appointed Jaime to the Kingsguard anyway. On purpose out of spite. And not only that, but now he's got Jamie, the son Tywin actually does love, at his side, under his control, 24 hours a day. Which, in and of itself, is also kind of a threat, isn't it? It's like a way of saying, from now on, if you tick me off, I can have your precious little Jamie killed in an instant. It's a mean thing to do. It's a pointless thing to do. But, if you're looking for a way to hurt somebody... It's also kind of a genius thing to do. When Tywin hears the news, well, you know, he's a total pro, even in the worst of times. So instead of freaking out or causing a scene or vowing revenge or anything like that, he kneels down and thanks Eris for the honor that he just oh so benevolently gave to the Lannister name. But that's just for appearances. Everybody, no matter how extraordinary they are, has their limits, their breaking point. And after 20 years of insults, jealousy, spite, and more, losing Jamie is what finally forces Tywin to say, enough is enough. Shortly after the announcement about Jamie's appointment to the Kingsguard is made public, Tywin tells Aarons that he needs to concentrate on his health, you know, which is the Westerosi equivalent of, I need to spend more time with my family. And for the second time in his career, he offers his resignation as Hand of the King. This time, Aerys accepts. And if I had to hazard a guess as to why, I think it's because he felt like he had finally taught the great Tywin a lesson. That he'd finally cut him down to size and proved once and for all that between the two of them, he was the one with all the power. It's hard sometimes to empathize with people who seemingly have it all. Wealth, power, etc. And it's especially difficult to empathize with someone like Tywin Lannister, who conducted himself in such a way that it just seemed like he was above all the petty problems that us mere mortals have to deal with. And yet, well, years later, one of Tywin's younger brothers, Kevin Lannister, is talking to someone who's angry at Tywin, who's saying stuff like, oh, you know, he's just this cold, emotionless, robotic-type figure who doesn't care about anyone, which I think is a view that a lot of people shared. And Kevin's response, 
It does a good job of pointing out that being hand of the king for Eris was a difficult, dangerous position to be in. A fact which Tywin's replacements, and that's replacements with an S, will soon find out. And just because he never complained, that doesn't mean that it wasn't an extremely difficult trying experience for Tywin. You know, and in ways that most people simply didn't think about. But as Meister Martin relates, Kevin does a good job of explaining those difficulties, saying, quote, Tywin seems a hard man to you, I know, but he is no harder than he's had to be. Our own father was gentle and amiable, but so weak his bannermen mocked him in their cups. Some saw fit to defy him openly. Other lords borrowed our gold and never troubled to repay it. At court they japed of toothless lions. Even his mistress stole from him. A woman scarcely one step above a whore, and she helped herself to my mother's jewels. It fell to Tywin to restore House Lannister to its proper place, just as it fell to him to rule this realm when he was no more than twenty. He bore that heavy burden for twenty years, and all it earned him was a mad king's envy. Instead of the honor he deserved, he was made to suffer slights beyond count, yet he gave the Seven Kingdoms peace, plenty, and justice. End quote. You know, people talk about how, when Joanna Lannister died, the best part of Tywin died with her. That not only was she the one person who managed to bring out his more human qualities, but she was also the only one who could somehow keep his, his tendency to go to extremes under control. In a lot of ways, Tywin served a similar function for Aerys Targaryen. He was the steady hand on the wheel of the kingdom, the man behind the throne that cleaned up the king's messes. And now that he's gone, there was nothing to stop Aerys's madness from running wild. Which brings us back to a place where madness is right at home. It brings us back to Harrenhal, and a grand tournament which we'll discuss at length in the next episode of Shadow of the Dragon. You've all heard me talk about Howl Premium before. It's the internet's premier source for excellent audio content. Not only podcasts, but also comedy albums and all sorts of fun, independent projects, such as Hardcore Game of Thrones. In fact, you can find the full season of Hardcore Game of Thrones only on Howl Premium. Go to Howl.fm and use the promo code HGOT for your first month free. I'll see you there. Dolly, y'all! This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hola, Nezea. Spanish Aki Presents. <laughs>